Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Jesus and the Widow of Nain. His heart went out to her. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 9th, 2013. Here we are, ten weeks after Easter, and Luke is reminding us of resurrection. We're in ordinary time, that liturgical lull of six months between Pentecost and Advent. But for Luke, there's nothing remotely ordinary about Jesus. He's the compassionate servant of God who wields power over death. The story about the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7 occurs only in Luke's Gospel. As this week's images show, the story has captivated the imagination of artists for 2,000 years. Crusaders and later Franciscans built a church to commemorate the story. Luke places it right after a story about another outsider, the exemplary faith of a Roman soldier. After healing the centurion's servant in Capernaum, Jesus and his disciples walked 25 miles southwest to the village of Nain. Luke describes how a large crowd accompanied Jesus and his disciples. He uses the same Greek word to describe how when they entered the town gate, they met another large crowd that was leaving the village. It was a funeral procession. They were leaving Nain because ritual purity prohibited burials inside the city walls. And so the, the two large crowds met at the town gate, the followers of Jesus and the mourners of Nain. The corpse was the only son of his mother, which meant that this woman faced double jeopardy she had been a widow, and now she was childless. As if her fragile life wasn't hard enough, she fell further down the economic scale of protection and provision. All she had to live for and to live by was gone. Perhaps the large crowd that accompanied her was indicative of the depth of her tragedy. When the two crowds met, and Jesus encountered the widow, Luke says his heart went out to her in a spontaneous act of compassion. No one had asked him to do anything. No one had recognized him. But the sights and sounds were too much for Jesus. Moved to compassion, he told her, don't cry. But then he touched the coffin raised the man to life, and Luke says, gave him back to his mother. I still remember learning the Greek verb to have compassion 30 years ago in seminary, splegnizomai. The word occurs a dozen times in the New Testament, only in the Gospels. 
The verb form comes from the noun splachna, meaning your bowels, heart, lungs, liver, or kidneys, which in that day were the center of human emotions. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is a man of compassion. As he walked through the villages and saw the crowds afflicted with sickness and disease, he had compassion on them. When he saw the hungry, he had compassion on them, healed the sick, and fed the 5,000. When thronged by another large crowd of the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the dumb, he told his disciples, I have compassion for these people. And when he left Jericho, followed by yet one more large crowd, and two blind beggars screamed for help, we read, Jesus had compassion on them and healed them. The two most famous parables in the Bible are about compassion. In contrast to the insider religious professionals, the outsider Good Samaritan had compassion on the man beaten by thugs. And while the prodigal son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Last week I read a post on Twitter to the effect that Christians are supposed to be safe people, reliably compassionate like Jesus, but instead were often feared as dangerous and judgmental. I read this tweet at the same time that Rick Warren's son committed suicide. Some people expressed compassion for his family, a famous family that had struggled with mental illness for decades, but many others were quick to shoot the wounded. My favorite novel, Infinite Jest, takes place at the Enfield Tennis Academy, a boarding school where kids hone their skills in the hopes of going pro. One of the characters, Lamont Chu, is so obsessed with tennis fame that he imagines pictures of himself in magazines, television announcers analyzing his stroke in hushed tones, and corporations paying him to wear their logos. He's so obsessed that he can't eat, sleep, or even go to the bathroom. Ambition is eating him alive. So Lamont goes to the Academy's guru named Lyle for help. He admits his rabid ambition to Lyle. He's ashamed of his hunger for hype. He feels lost and lonely. Lyle is the perfectly safe listener. He's fundamentally compassionate with these young tennis prodigies. And I love how David Foster Wallace, the author, describes him. Quote, The supplicant feels both nakedly revealed and sheltered, somehow from all possible judgment. Lamont knows that he can spill his guts to Lyle. He knows that he'll receive compassion and not criticism. 
Some of us are not only hard on others, we're hardest on ourselves. Much of Gerard Manley Hopkins' poetry reflects his lifelong struggles with darkness and despair. Converting to Catholicism estranged him from his Anglican family. He burned much of the poetry he had written, and even stopped writing for seven years. After ordination as a Jesuit priest, an assignment in Ireland left him feeling isolated and melancholy, thus giving rise to what scholars call his so-called terrible sonnets. But somewhere in his darkness, Hopkins sensed God's light. He moved beyond self-reproach to divine compassion. One of his poems describes an interior conversation with himself about accepting God's smile upon his life. Listen to his poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. My own heart, let me have more pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter kind, charitable. Not live this tormented mind with this tormented mind tormenting yet. I cast for comfort I can no more get by groping round my comfortless than blind eyes in their dark can day, or thirst can find thirsts all in all and all a world of wet. Soul, self, come, poor Jack self. I do advise you, jaded, let be. Call off thoughts a while elsewhere. Leave comfort root room. Let joy sighs at God knows when to God knows what. Whose smile is not wrung, see you. Unforeseen times, rather, as skies between pie mountains, lights a lovely mile. Psalm 146 for this week reminds us that there are millions of people in our world who need compassion and care. The oppressed, the hungry, prisoners, the blind, those who are bowed down, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, and, in all likelihood, our next-door neighbors. Be kind, said the Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. For books this week, I review a title called The Celtic Vision, Prayers, Blessings, Songs, and Incantations from the Gaelic Tradition. The editor is Esther DeWall, Liguri Publications, 2001, 171 pages. This book has a distinct history that's not apparent from its title, although it's made clear in Esther DeWall's introduction. For 60 years, the folklorist Alexander Carmichael traverse Scotland's Outer Hebrides Isles, collecting and translating the traditions of its Gaelic Catholic people. 
If you look at a map of the Hebrides' 130-mile craggy coast, you can only imagine the passion and physical stamina that must have required. Alexander Carmichael's eventual trove contained a little of everything. Ballads, prayers, proverbs, hymns, charms, incantations, ruins, poems, tales, and songs, all of which constituted an ethnography, oral history, and preservation of an indigenous culture. Professor Ronald Black of Edinburgh University says, Carmina Gadelica is by any standards a treasure house, a marvelous and unrepeatable achievement. There will never be another Carmina Gadelica. Carmichael's Labor of Love was eventually published in six volumes across 70 years under the title Carmina Gadelica, which means Hymns of the Gale. The subtitle, Hymns and Incantations, with illustrative notes on words, rites, and customs, dying and obsolete, orally collected in the highlands and islands of Scotland. Carmichael himself published the first two volumes in 1900. His daughter, Ella, continued the project. Volumes three and four were published by his grandson, James Watson, in 1940 and 41. And then finally, volumes five and six were published by Angus Matheson in 1954 and 1971. Much of the Carmina Gadelica is a distinctly Christian form of Celtic spirituality. Some of it's a syncretism of the superstitious and pagan. All of it's a lyrical combination of the simple and yet dignified, homely and eloquent, ordinary and yet sacred. If you Google Carmina Gadelica, you'll find an online version. But even better is Esther DeWall's book, a collection of excerpts which she has organized into 16 different categories. It includes poetry about birth and death, prayers for morning and evening, healing and protection, invocations to bless the land, the hunting and herding, the farming and fishing. I especially like the so-called invocations and good wishes and the short blessings in DeWall's book. Here's one of my favorites to give you a feeling for the Celtic poems and prayers. The love and affection of heaven be to you. The love and affection of the saints be to you. The love and affection of the angels be to you. The love and affection of the sun be to you. The love and affection of the moon be to you, each day and night of your lives, to keep you from haters, to keep you from harmers, to keep you from oppressors. These simple words are a sacred act. They're both tender and profound. When we bless another person, we're not wishing them good luck as if they had sneezed. Rather, in the words of another Celtic blessing, 
worth commending them to a father who wants, quote, to do excelling good to me, end quote. I've enjoyed using DeWall's book in my times of prayer and devotion, and I highly recommend it. Once again, the editor is Esther DeWall. The title of the book, The Celtic Vision. For movies this week, I review a new documentary called A Place at the Table, 2012. America likes to boast that it's the world's richest country and biggest food producer. That's true enough, but in this documentary about food insecurity, we learn that the United States is dead last among the advanced economies of the IMF in feeding its own people. There are 50 million people, including one out of four children, who suffer food insecurity in America. From coast to coast, there are thousands of what are called food deserts, where it's virtually impossible to find fresh produce, because it's not economically viable for agribusiness to deliver to their small towns. Which phenomenon, by the way, explains why hunger and obesity go together. The number of food banks and soup kitchens has skyrocketed in the last few decades, which is just what many legislators want. Let private charity and not government policy solve this shameful problem. The movie focuses on three stories from the working poor, a fifth grader in Colorado, a single mother and her two kids in Philadelphia, and a second grader in Mississippi, along with experts and advocates like actor Jeff Bridges. I watched this infuriating film on Comcast's On Demand. It's only 86 minutes and would make for excellent family viewing. The title of the film, A Place at the Table. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted one of the Celtic prayers. It's called the Beltane Blessing, and is taken from Esther DeWall's book, The Celtic Vision. Bless, O threefold, true and beautiful, myself, my spouse, and my children, my tender children and their beloved mother at their head, on the fragrant plain, on the gay mountain shelling, on the fragrant plain, on the gay mountain shelling. Everything within my dwelling or in my possession, all kind and crops, all flocks and corn, from hallow eve to belting eve, with goodly progress and gentle blessing, from sea to sea in every river mouth, from wave to wave, and base of waterfall. Be the three persons taking possession of all to me belonging. Be the sure trinity protecting me in truth. 
Oh, satisfy my soul in the words of Paul, and shield my loved ones beneath the wing of thy glory. Shield my loved ones beneath the wing of thy glory. Bless everything and everyone of this little household by my side. Place the cross of Christ on us with the power of love till we see the land of joy, till we see the land of joy. What time the kind shall forsake the stall, what time the sheep shall forsake the folds, what time the goats shall ascend to the mount of mist, may the tending of the triune follow them, May the tending of the triune follow them. Thou being who didst create me at the beginning, listen and attend me as I bend the knee to thee, morning and evening as is becoming in me, in thine own presence, O God of life, in thine own presence, O God of life. The Beltane Blessing an annual celebration on May the 1st among the Celtic Gaelic people. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 9th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.